Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us this morning, Ian Bremer from the Eurasia Group, uh, working on his the sequel to his book, uh, G-Zero World, uh, G-Wiz World, I think is what you're going to have to call it this time, because G-Wiz, this is amazing. There are different schools of thought. There is an article out this morning that says these, these yields are pointing to an enormous global slowdown and uh, the possibility of global recession. And others say this is just you know a massive expression of uncertainty, that nobody knows what's going to happen because we've never been in this kind of situation before. Uh, where would you come down? Uh, clearly the latter. Uh, I think the level of geopolitical volatility is growing. Um, the, uh, the weakness of established institutions, the unwillingness of the Americans to act as the global policeman, the architect of global trade, the cheerleader for global values, um, and our strongest allies, the Europeans, in complete and utter disarray. David Lipton, the number two at the IMF, gave a speech last week saying we, the IMF thinks it's, we're now in a G0 world. We, they weren't saying that five years ago. Well, uh, David was suggesting that what's happening challenges the long-held dogma that globalization can't be reversed. That's right. And the processes of deglobalization, um, as technology brings us closer and closer together, the walls are coming up. The real walls that are being built, the virtual walls in aligning individuals to nations, cleaving them into sects um, and narrower and narrower political ideologies, this is happening. It's the opposite of Tom Friedman's world is flat. It's the opposite of Frank Fukuyama's The End of History. We certainly are entering a period of much more divisive politically, and that's causing a lot more conflict. The markets are reflecting that. We've only got with you about a half hour, so this question may be too long for that. But what happened between when Fukuyama was writing that capitalism had triumphed because none of the other economic systems worked and where we are now? Well, a few things happened. One is uh, countries like China and emerging markets were rising and becoming more influential, but they have dramatically different political and economic values inculcated in those political systems. They're authoritarian. They are state capitalists in many cases. They're different levels of development. And so they're not going to, you know, easily agree with the established players on the world order that, oh, let's all work together. Let's all be responsible stakeholders. The other issue is that globalization has been all about emerging market labor displacing and replacing developed market labor. And well, that meant that social contracts across the developed market were not worth the paper they were printed on. And that's hollowed out these middle classes and working classes and led to enormous degrees of populism here in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, and, and is weak in those countries. Final point, technology has sped this up and made it sharper, whether it's, you know, the fact that you don't have mainstream media. And so instead, people are much more capable through their social media of only identifying with people that they like. So they have echo bubbles in the way they hear news, or the fact that a terrorist organization can recruit much more easily across its borders. You see that the threats to the world order are not individual states anymore. They're these systemic processes that undermine state governance. So central government are becoming weaker and weaker as this process goes through. And, and that's where I wanted to go. 
technical progress is different now. This isn't Nikki Kelder's world. It's not Simon Kuznets. It's certainly not Dr. Solo's world of MIT. I like how you say speeding up and sharper. Let's focus on the sharper. What do the elites do? You identified 10 minutes ago that Michael McKee is an elite. You, what do the elites do to get back in touch with people harmed, hurt, cut by the sharpness of our new technology? Well, what we see is that they don't do anything um, until they're forced to. Um, I mean, if I look at countries that are addressing this, I, they're small and homogeneous. Denmark, for example, where, you know, sort of your um, all of your benefits don't follow you as, as uh, with your workplace, but follow you as an individual worker, whether you're in or out of an individual job. So it makes more sense for the gig economy, and it creates much more flexible workforces. That's not happening in the United States. It's not happening in the UK, because thus far, the elites have not, in, in established power, have not felt they've needed to. Yeah, but our individualism accentuates our eliteness. Yes, that's certainly Almost true. Almost our Lockean view accentuates us away from the Danish model. Well, you, do, you, you can be an individual until you can't. I mean, after 9-11, I was here in New York City. Mm -hmm. This city did not feel like a city of individuals. This city felt like one that came together. That was true after Pearl Harbor and World War II. But today... Uh, in the world of Trump versus Clinton, two, uh, two, two candidates who are by far the most negatively disposed to by the population we've seen in decades, it feels much more like a Lockean view of individuals and dog-eat-dog. Right. Dog. We, we, we haven't yet experienced the size of crisis that will force us um, to move beyond that. And that means that from a market perspective, uh, this volatility, the uncertainty, the crises that we're experiencing, they're clearly going to grow. Well, we seem to be validating the concept of uh, autocrats that at this, in this kind of environment, it awakens a latent desire for someone to be in control. Uh, yeah, if you look at the demographics that align with Trumpism, uh, the one thing you see is these are individuals that want a strong leader. And that aligns with people that like Erdogan. It aligns with people that like Putin. Um, I mean, this this is a, and and many of the European uh, populist leaders on the continent um, as well. So I mean, clearly, the idea that rule of law is the most important thing that you cherish. Well, I mean, depending on what you think of your economic outlook and your security outlook, not so much. I thought Dr. Kissinger's essay the other day in the Wall Street Journal was particularly smart, an update on the world order and an update on the seriousness of the moment. You can always agree and disagree with Dr. Kissinger. That's part of the game. Tell me about Ian Bremmer's world order right now. What does Europe end up being within that world order? Well, you know, so interesting that Europe was getting so much weaker well before the Brexit referendum, and whether you thought it was a good idea or a bad idea for the UK, let's recognize that 10 years down the road, uh, it's vastly more likely that Europe will be smaller and less well-governed and less meaningful on the global stage and as a market than it is today. Uh, the, the governance doesn't work. 
um, the alignments of countries around common principles and norms doesn't work. So, I mean, I don't like the people that were supporting Brexit, the leaders who are, were clearly venal and were not interested in really providing um, a, a pathway of the UK towards greatness. Uh, but um, there's no question that there were very good reasons and continue to be good reasons to vote out of Europe. Now, my, my Kissinger view is, is, is pretty different on this, right? I mean, I, I think that Kissinger is increasingly showing himself to be one of the eminent statesmen of the 20th century, not of the 21st. He's focusing on states still as the principal enemies. Yeah. And whether that's China or Russia and the big challenges that are coming, it's very, that, that kind of a realpolitik model, when actually the entire model that Kissinger grew up with is coming unglued by systemic challenges that are aimed directly at governance and the state itself. It's not just terrorism. It's not just pandemics. It's technology and the ability of those things to just undermine the social contract that made you believe in your government leaders. In that regard, the United States and China have vastly more in common today than they have apart. And Kissinger hasn't yet decided that that's the case. I'm curious what that implies as you sort of look out into the future about nation states and their ability to retain the cultural ties within that nation state that bind them together. Well, it implies good things and bad things. The good thing it implies is that the United States and China, for example, great powers should find much more that they can work together on, whether it's climate, whether it's dealing with terror, whether it's dealing with a rogue like North Korea. That's a positive thing, right? So we, we have much less concern about world wars or major power wars in that regard. The bad thing is that this decentralization process, where effective governance is going to be found much more flexibly and much more locally through networks, as well as through your municipality, through your state, uh, through your town. Um, th those things are directly making state leaders more vulnerable. In the United States, that just means Washington becomes less relevant over time as we continue to see the polarization. Yeah, In China, it means that those people could potentially lose their lives, right? And that's a problem for them. True. And that is much worse than our situation for the moment. But I'm wondering in a Donald Trump world where the U.S. has succeeded and the European Union uh, failed so far is that we are willing to take tax dollars from New York and send them to Mississippi if Mississippi has a, a budget problem. They're not willing to, they've done some of that, but they're not willing or happy about it in Europe. Do we lose that? Do people in individual states start to resent other states if we devolve power so much? Well, certainly. And, and despite the fact that we've done a decent job of uh, actually moving money around at the state level, we haven't necessarily done a very good job of effectively deploying that money uh, towards those in the middle and working classes that feel like they're being left behind by this economy. And I don't think anyone thinks either Hillary or Trump are going to be able to effectively respond to that. So yes, I think that the inequality qualities that are growing in the United States will, will be exacerbated uh, by the fact that yeah. the players that matter are becoming more local and therefore they'll have strength to resist when other states come with the begging bowl. That'll be interesting. Right. Where are you on the money question, particularly for our global Wall Street audience, on whether people want to move from London to other parts of Europe? I mean, I don't buy it for a minute. I was, I was talking with Kevin Sheikey of Bloomberg LP about this yesterday, 
granted, folks, I'm talking in our book, we're building a world headquarters next to Mansion House in London. Do people want to move to Europe? I think that the banking sector, uh, because of the nature of the regulatory environment changing and the power uh, of the European courts, um, will end up having to do a significant piece of their business if they want to do euro-denominated work. It's not going to be out of London. It's going to be in the uh, in in the continent. So the passporting issue is going to be important. They could lose twenty percent or more of their jobs. That big a number, twenty percent. Yeah, over five to ten years. I think that's fairly that's wow. fairly likely. Okay. But leaving that aside, I think most of the people that um, live in London, if they want to move, are not going to be moving to Europe. I think most of the super high net worth individuals are going to be moving to other places that also feel like truly global cities. I think that's a smaller hit, a much smaller hit to the UK than the financial sector hit. Ian Bremmer, thank you so much. Michael McKeon, Tom King here in Francine Lacroix in London. Uh, Francine, we're going to go to our analyst from Hermes here in a moment. But Francine, help me here with when we say there's a crisis in Italian banks. Is your family in Italy thinking of taking their money out of the bank? What does a crisis actually mean? Well, if we have a run on the banks like we saw in Northern Rock here in the UK, it will get really ugly. But, Tom, you actually hit the nail on the head, right? The problem is that at the moment it's share prices going down. They're looking for a solution. When mom and pops in Italy decide that they don't want to keep their money in an Italian bank anymore, that's when the real trouble could start. And that's what people are trying to avoid at the moment. Filippo Alati with us with Hermes. Hermes. Uh, investment management, tours of duty at BMP Perry, Bob Berenberg, and others. Filippo, help me here with the backstory. What are we not seeing in the media? What are we not seeing in the press about Italian banks right now? What we see basically over here, it's, um, and in Italy, is that uh, there is a uh, some banks that so which are very much in the um, on, on the radar screen, and they are having uh, some trouble with the bad loans, which actually is something which has been going on for many years. And uh, there's been actually, if you look at the result, the most recent result, a move from the weaker banks to the strongest bank, like for example, Intesa. That's been in terms of deposits. So actually, people in Italy have started moving deposits from the weak to the stronger banks. And of course, so if that uh, continues, that uh, is not going to be uh, good news. Will there be one bank standing? Uh, yeah, if there will be only one bank standing, that wouldn't be very good for the Italian banking system, of course. So that's why the, the, um, the authorities are trying to negotiate a deal with the European Union in order to recapitalize the banks and uh, have many of them still standing. But I think also, also one of the way forward will be more consolidation in a very fragmented market. Because I think also there are um, still uh, something like 300 uh, different banking groups in Italy, which is far too high. It's one of the most fragmented uh, banking market in, in Europe uh, together with Germany. Uh, Philippa, overall, Italy's bank rescue plan has just been not credible, right? This is what the markets have been saying for quite a few weeks, now accelerated because of Brexit. Does the European Commission need to be more flexible with the Italian banks? I think so. The, um, the reason why the, uh, the, uh, the, the the different set of measures which has been announced over the last, uh, basically the last year or so, 
uh, they were all, uh, in my opinion, going into the right direction, but of course, so they were quite uh, minimal in terms of expected outcome. And now I think, so since so we um, can really go on so with uh, having the, the banking stocks making new lows, because at some point in time, as you say, the moms and dads, so we start asking questions about their savings. Um, I think at some point in time, so a high-profile compromise needs to be found between financial stability and state aid, because I think at some point in time, and perhaps we near in this um, uh, breaking time, and so we need the financial stability to effectively trump uh, the state aid in risk in rescuing the Italian banking system. The EU's policy has basically been, or the Eurozone policy has basically been throughout its existence to uh, find the least painful compromise and then kick the can down the road. How systemic is the Italian situation and can they get away with that this time? I think, yeah, it's been uh, kicking the can down the road that's for as long as I can remember. But also yeah, we have to remember that so we have this uh, new concept of banking union in place for only since uh, basically November 14. So all these problems, so in my opinion, they derive from a uh, regulator in Italy and other countries, in Spain, in Ireland, the past, been basically captured by the banks. And only when that's so the ECB took responsibility for the banking supervision, then we saw uh, the real risk um, uh, um, exposure in the Italian banking book. And I think it takes time and uh, we still have different, um, uh, we're trying to get things harmonizing over Europe. It takes time and to, to answer the second part of your question, I think the, the banking system in Italy is very um, systemic in a sense uh, if we have some, some type of bail-in, so burden sharing of the bondholders, this could be to, could cause a confident shock which could easily uh, translate it on some sort of bank runs. And if banks run up in Italy, then uh, there's really no way not to see uh, those uh, happening, I don't know, in Spain or in Portugal or other weaker countries. How big is the danger to the European banking system right now in terms of uh, you know, what Tom and Francine were talking about a moment ago of any kind of runs or any kind of counterparty failures? The risk is always very high and um, I mean, if it's not that uh, dealt uh, properly, then uh, I mean, we, we can have uh, some type of uh, serious damage. We have to remember, so we all have these uh, rescue, state rescue fund, the so-called ESM, still 700 billion euros. So at the very last result, it could be used, but hopefully so we don't get down this road and uh, uh, use the ESM, which was lately used for the Greek um, uh, rescue. But, Filippo, what I don't understand is why Germany or Brussels would play with fire, right? We understand that they would both impose uh, this, this – they would oppose any bailout that basically doesn't comply with existing bank failure rules. But they can't take such a chance at this moment when Brexit happened 10 days ago. Yeah, no, that, so that would be a very risky endeavor uh, for as much as I understand the German point in order on respecting the rules. Because, of course, that's all, we have to think that we had the um, – banking rescue in Spain, in Portugal, in, in Greece, and then uh, bondholders, they, they suffer by being involved in the rescue of those banks. Of course, so they will never zero apart from uh, uh, some uh, marginal case like Novo Banco. 
but of course that's all uh, as I say that's all uh, the, um, the state intervention rule in general are um, forbidden but there are some limited exceptions right. they could they make um, for some from some room for flexibility Filippo you have a beautiful paragraph in your research note on the EU bank recovery and resolution directive and basically this is a coco of Deutsche Bank infamy of eight months ago done through the legislation of the ECB and the EBI. Get all that alphabet soup. The bottom line is the EU would do a cram down to bondholders in Italy. Do I have that right, that the only solution with equity capital not available as a route is to do a cram down with bond losses? Is that the right approach? That that would be, the, in my opinion, one of the worst case scenario because I mean I still believe that so there is some uh, um, room in the rules actually to make some sort of uh, equity injection. So say in um, in plain English, so some sort of bailout, uh, if you want to so bailout uh, bailout uh, 2.0, by which so the capital, the sorry, the state inject capital in in the bank in this case Monte de Paschi, and um, therefore Italy gets a um, curve out, a, an extension. From the stated rules for I don't know six months, uh, one year, so for as long as uh, they can manage. Because I mean, what is certain is that at this level, Montepaschi is trading uh, um, basically t- ten cents on the intangible net asset value, so they can't raise uh, really right. capital from the from private right. um, investors. Yeah. Filippo Aloari is uh, Hermes fund manager, senior credit analyst. We're talking about Italian banks, and also joining Tom and I in this half hour, Francine Lacroix from. Bloomberg Surveillance in London, who has been following Italian banks for quite some time. She may have a few dollars in an Italian bank, (laughs) one one way or the other. We won't say. (laughs) Uh, There are four banks, uh, Filippo, that have been bailed out by the Italian government. Uh, They are uh, the minority, but there are uh, a, a number of others in trouble. Is there a is there a rank order? Is there somebody who is not in trouble uh, and somebody that uh, obviously has to be fixed immediately? Yeah, actually, yeah, the four banks you were mentioning, so they were actually, as opposed to bailout, were bailed in because uh, there was a contribution by the subordinate bondholders of those banks, and those were very minor banks. So all together, so they're accounting for less than 1% of the deposit market. Um, and they, as I said, that's what they were bailed in. So the, the subordinated bondholders, which happen also to be a deposit of those banks, that's so were basically zeroed, which caused a lot of stress in the Italian funding market. Um, because you have to remember, in Italy, there is a uh, specialty versus other European jurisdiction in America. A lot of um, about uh, 10, between 10 and 15 percent of the Italian wealth is in so-called uh, bank bonds, because they think uh, of the bank bond as some some type of deposit, uh, certificate deposit, if you want. So there is a, um, and this, is a, in my opinion, was a mistake by the Italian Parliament because when they passed this uh, uh, bail-in directive into the Italian 
law, in the national law. Uh, in my opinion, so they didn't really take into account uh, the morphology of the market and the fact there is a widespread uh, um, uh, ownership of this type of bonds in the retail. So, of course, so when they did the retail uh, bondholders of those four banks that so got zero, then you, you can imagine the, many of them rushed for the accident that caused a lot of um, uh, sharp um, price correction. Also, on the top of that, uh, around Christmas, it happened the Novo Banco fiasco in Portugal when some senior bondholders were uh, brought back to the bad bank uh, of um, Bash. So th- this is not really, it wasn't really a confident boosting exercise. And uh, to answer your question, in terms of uh, clearly Monte de Paschi is the largest one, which is more uh, in trouble, and they need to fix it um, uh, as up. There are other banks, uh, but I would think uh, um, uh, Monte de Paschi is the, uh, the, the next in line. It has to be priority number one. Then there is, uh, between the largest banks, there is Unicredit. We all know they need to raise capital, but I would think that Unicredit can manage by, by itself. But Filippo, what happens if they don't fix it to these banks in the next six months? We were speaking to uh, the chairman of Societe Generale, Lorenzo Binismaghi, he's former ECB, and he was saying, look, Italy's banking crisis will spread to the rest of Europe unless it's fixed. Yeah, I think so. There are many ways to fix uh, this uh, this problem, and so one could think of uh, some type of. Uh, of course, so in my opinion, at this moment uh, in time, basically the bailing or bondholders would be the worst possible solution. In my opinion, uh, likely to create more uh, confidence shock as opposed to boost the confidence. There is a possibility of funding uh, the big banks and involving the big banks in uh, rescuing the the weaker one. But I think it wouldn't be a Good, solu- good solution either because then, of course, you would make the larger banks even weaker. Then also, there is a possibility of using the Atlante Fund, the so-called um, uh, the one which was uh, put in place in order to save Vicenza and Veneto. I think, to my opinion, this is probably the way that we're trying to go down. But um, this may fix uh, um, Monte de Paschi, but then, of course, also we need something more. So right, but so uh, what makes th- sense now, Filippo, is just to increase this Atlante Fund, right? It was considered too small. If they inject, what, another 20 billion, will that be enough to at least save and buy time for Montepaschi? I think Monte de Paschi probably they need something between say two and a half to up to five billion euro, and I think if you think in the grand scheme of things, it's rather uh, trivial this amount because if you think at all the bad loans amount into something like 360 billion, then it shouldn't be too much of a problem finding uh, up to five billion for Monte de Paschi. Of course, also the Atlante fund needs to be upsized, upscaled. I think this is probably the way they prefer route yeah. uh, in Rome. Filippo, thank you so much. Filippo Alaotti, hope to get you on again for Hermes uh, Investment Management on Italian banks. Our thanks to Francine Lacroix in London um, as well. Hillary Clinton yesterday. She's absolved by the FBI of criminal charges, or at least um, I mean, likely the prosecutors will go along with that, but uh, the FBI didn't find reason to charge her necessarily. Uh, the, um, the problem is that uh, the FBI director, James Comey, had quite a lot to say about how she conducted herself, shall we say. Dan Clifton is uh, with Strategus. He follows politics, um, head of policy research for them. And uh, there are sort of two uh, camps uh, out there this morning in in analyzing what happened. One (laughs) says she's off the hook, and so this will fade. Others say, 
This yep. is a massive opening for uh, Donald Trump because um, the, the FBI yep. director was so critical. You know, it reinforces our existing biases. Not sure it changed any undecided voters yesterday, but, uh, you know, I mean, if you watch that press conference, and, uh, you know, we were about three minutes into that press conference yesterday, and I said, wow, the FBI is going to charge her, which we didn't think was going to be the case, but the case against her was so damaging. And then you get about seven, eight minutes in, and all of a sudden he switches and says, but we're not going to bring charges, you know. So so there's a lot for everybody there. Like Hillary is saying, I'm not going to be charged. This is over. Let's put it behind us. I can now go out and campaign with the very popular existing President Obama. Uh, Much of her base is not really enthused about her, and Obama helps her there. So you see how this really has helped Hillary in that one sense. On the other side, I think there's political damage. I think that there's uh, legal damage there. I mean, just watching NBC News last night where they took her statement to saying no classified information was ever sent or received, and then juxtaposing that with the FBI director saying, yes, she did send and uh, send and receive classified information. It was terribly damaging to watch that on the, on the nightly news last night. And I believe that the ads are writing themselves. And the argument that the Republicans are going to make are twofold. Number one, that there's a different set of rules for the elites and not for regular people, including uh, meaning the elites like Hillary Clinton. But more importantly, this really trying to set up the argument uh, that she lied, that she couldn't handle her email, and that she can't keep our country safe if she couldn't keep her email yeah, safe. And I think those okay. are going to be the two arguments that come from Republicans. Dan, let me go to your skill set. I'm looking at PredictWise just as one yep. summary, like real clear politics of all the different polls out there. I mean, the presidential thing, I'm like most of America. I'm like, okay, we heard it all yesterday. Yep. What right. about the Senate in the House? Sure. What is the Dan Clifton backstory yeah. on how those people react to this presidential news flow? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a great question, Tom. And you remember the big dynamic for this election is whether the Republicans could keep the House. If you believe Hillary's going to win the White House, and if she wins the White House, then the Democrats are likely to take the Senate. Republicans are defending seven states that President Obama won in 2012. And so if Hillary wins those states like Obama did, she's likely to pull the Democratic Senate candidate over the finish line. They only need four seats to, to take over the Senate. And so the question is, what happens in the House? And what yesterday did was really start to energize Republicans who may not really be in support of Donald Trump. The, the idea that this, that, that this can go on and that this system is rigged, I think it's going to help the Republicans get their turnout out, which allows them to keep a firewall in the House. It will probably keep those Senate races closer. And so I think on net, this has been positive for Republican on the down ballot ticket, which I think will be critical for policy in 2017. If you have an all Democratic Congress and Democratic White House, Democrats can basically do whatever they want. Uh, if you have a Republican House there, I think it's going to make it much harder to get fiscal policy stimulus, immigration, and many of the changes that Hillary is going to want to get into place. So yesterday was a very big event for the election. You know, Tom, sometimes we get these events, we make a big deal about it. Six months later, we get to November and you don't even remember those types of events. But yesterday was was one of those big, big events, I think. Switching gears a little bit, let's ask about the other big event out there, Brexit. Is that going to play into the U.S. election at all? You you know, so I spent my week last week in Europe, and, and, and first point is, 
the U.K. investors are so bearish. They believe a recession is inevitable. They're bearish on equities. They're bearish on their currency. And one of the things that really popped up from our, our conversations with institutional investors was that U.K. investors were giving a much greater probability that Donald Trump could win the election here in the U.S. And it was it's because they still had this shell shock of Brexit vote happening that 52 percent of the country voted to get out. And there are a lot of differences between Brexit and the U.S. race. Brexit was binary. You have personalities here. Not many people like Donald Trump. But I think that there was this sense that there's this anti-incumbent, anti-establishment mood that's out there that is underestimated and much more motivated than, say, the state campaign was there or, oh, yes, Hillary, she's establishment, that the people who are really, uh, really motivated to, to vote in this election are going to be voting against the establishment. And on net, that, that benefits Donald Trump. But i got to be honest with you. When I woke up this morning, everybody was talking about Trump praising Saddam Hussein. Not exactly the message that you want coming out of uh, yesterday's press conference from the FBI. So he's got to get more disciplined. He's got to raise more money. He's got to have organization. He's got to improve his favorability rating. And he's got to turn this into a referendum on Hillary. All those are yeah. very large steps to get there. So All that still a lot more challenges. Mike, jump in here. All that by Friday. Well, you got to ask yeah, him yeah. if he's capable of that. Yeah, that's true. You know, I, I'm starting to think that maybe he doesn't want to win, to be honest with you, because even when the Inspector IG report came out, he was talking about other things like Ted Cruz. He's got to get focused and, and really has to set his sights on her. Uh, I've worked on campaigns before where we lost by mid-July because the candidate was not focused, and so he really runs that risk, given that he's at such a disadvantage in fundraising. His VP pick will be important, and I think that's going to be the next data, the data point that we get for this election, and it's got to be somebody who uh, doesn't get bogged down in controversy uh, right away. So it's got to be somebody who's not controversial, uh, but still be, be able to help him fundraise and, and overcome some of those disadvantages I outlined earlier. Dan Clifton, never enough time. We've got to get you back on. When you're in New York again, let us uh, know. Mr. Clifton is with Jason Trennett Strategus uh, Partners as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.